Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Kind of embarrassed to tell this story because my Aunt Esther's here, and she was on the home and school at my elementary school. But when I was in third grade at Lowell, Aunt Esther, I got into my one and only fist fight, uh, which was planned. <laughs> this was my last year in public school until high school, and this was probably part of why. And, and I wasn't usually a bad kid. But I'm fairly sure that this fight was mostly my fault because, you know, last week we were talking about being big talkers and, and making vows you can't keep. And I, I was a big talker, apparently. And uh, I don't remember what caused the dispute, but this kid was twice my size. And I had no business pushing this issue. Um, anyway, I, I threatened him the whole way out after class in my nerdy way. And uh, when we squared off outside, uh, there were probably dozens of kids watching and, and yelling at us. And we stood there for a few seconds, squared off, and I realized he wasn't really defending his face very well. Uh, so I went in and I slapped him. Like a girl. I, I'm like, this was not a Will Smith slap. In other words, this was not designed to floor him. This was just me and sort of intending to let him know I could hit you if I wanted to, but I don't want to hit you so hard that we get in trouble. And he returned my kindness by stepping forward and kicking me in the shin with everything he had. And at that point, I crumbled to the ground, and he ran away, and the crowd dissipated, and I sat there crying. Um, that's not a very heroic tale. But it demonstrates several truths that have relevance to the passage. And one is that, you, you, well, first off, you shouldn't pick fights. That's a good lesson to, to walk away, especially fights you can't win. Uh, two is that a slap is seldom hard enough to get the job done, but mostly what it demonstrates is why I kind of hate today's lesson, because even a small attack will almost always invite a bigger response. Uh, people will take advantage of you if you let them. It's in our nature to do so. It's a basic animal-like response. If someone hits us, we hit back harder. Or as Sean Connery puts it in The Untouchables, if they pull a knife, you pull a gun, he sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. For the record, it's also the Philly way. And pretty much the way of most societies, I think, in human history. How can you win if you don't fight back? We know from personal experience that people will take advantage of our weakness, even perceived Weakness, And so we shield ourselves from that fact by projecting strength, right? And if necessary, by hitting them before they can hit us, right? So the main lesson I took from that third grade fight was that I should have hit him harder, you know? Uh, and I was humiliated because I basically let him win. And I spent many years thinking of how I could retaliate. And I wanted to make sure such a thing would never happen again. Because I hate being taken advantage of. 
Who doesn't? We don't even respect people who let people take advantage of them. We like fighters, don't we? This is obvious in our storytelling, even, because almost every great movie is a revenge story. Some of them are love stories, but even those are better if there's a villain who gets his in the end. We like a little revenge mixed in. We like revenge. We cheer for revenge. Some of you sinners may disagree with this assessment, but you'd be wrong. Um, The Princess Bride is one of the greatest movies ever made. And it's a love story, yes, for sure. But that's not what gives it its staying power. Because as Peter Falk's character promises in the very beginning when telling his grandson about it, he says it has everything. It has fencing, fighting, torture, revenge. So it's not a chick flick, because it's also a revenge story. Wesley, he's a captain of a pirate ship that is called, literally, the pirate ship Revenge. And Inigo Montoya spends his entire life hunting down the six-fingered man who killed his father. If you take those elements out of the story, you're basically left with the notebook. There's nothing left. (laughs) And just to see how that connects to last week's message, most of these revenge stories start with a vow. Someone swears an oath to make someone sorry for what they did. So in that scene from The Untouchables I quoted from earlier, it ends with Sean Connery and Kevin Costner swearing a blood oath to get Al Capone. Wesley swears he will always come for his sweet buttercup. Inigo explains how he swore to find his father's killer, and he's even prepared this brilliant speech, right? Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And when he gets the chance to deliver that speech in that great revenge moment, it gives you chills. We love that. We love revenge stories. Even in our music, I was listening to A Boy Named Sue by Johnny Cash, and he swears to kill his deadbeat father for giving him a girl's name. You know, see, revenge odes are even fun to sing about. We love this. Retaliation is a passion of ours, an art form. Now, I will say many of us are not very good at it. We lose fights. And we get taken advantage of, and most of our revenge plans never leave the sort of mental fantasy stage. Uh, But that doesn't happen to our heroes, does it? That's why we have movies. Movies show us a side of ourselves that we wish was stronger. We wish we were like that, you know? So we like heroes that don't take crap from anybody. We like John Wayne. We like James Bond. We like Han Solo. If you have a less discerning taste, you like Nicolas Cage. Like, we all have something, right? We like macho guys because they make the world make sense. And this bleeds into our politics. We want strong leaders who take no prisoners. Who would want weak leaders, right? When Donald Trump was running for president, he was asked about his favorite Bible verse. And it wasn't in 2 Corinthians. Uh, Most candidates will piously mention a psalm when asked this kind of a question, whatever their advisors tell them. Trump blurts out, I really like that eye for an eye thing. (laughs) It was a typical Trump answer, and he was criticized by, by many in the church for it. But isn't that how we really feel? We like the payback thing. The world feels more balanced when rotten people pay for their rottenness. Christians may piously call this justice. Even non-Christians believe in it. They might call it payback or karma or something like that. It's a popular saying. Ain't karma a female dog? 
And when people say that line, they say it with a sense of pleasure. Schadenfreude, right? They say it because they're enjoying someone else's suffering. Why? Because they deserved it. They had it coming to them. I love the word, by the way, schadenfreude. Could there be a more German word than schadenfreude? Or a more German concept, pain and getting pleasure from the pain of others. It's so German. I love that. Anyway, all that is to say that the concept of an eye for an eye payback is a natural appeal to us. We all know what it's like to feel wronged by somebody. And we all hate the sensation that someone has taken advantage of us. And so we studiously avoid letting people walk on us. And when they do, we really want payback. We want our enemies to pay for what they took from us. And if possible, we'd like them to pay even more than it's worth. That's why we sue people, not only for the money they owe us, but also for the pain and suffering, right? So that's where Jesus starts. He opens, as he has been doing, by stating the prevailing wisdom of the day. Verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And, you know, where does that eye for an eye concept come from? This is called, by theologians, the lex talionis, which is Latin for the law of retribution. And actually it appears in a few places in the Old Testament, uh, and the formula first appears in Exodus 21, and it's, uh, so this is shortly after the Ten Commandments, and it refers to when two men are fighting and they manage to knock over a pre- pregnant woman, like bizarrely specific, right? Exodus 21, I'll read just this little section, this paragraph, 22 to 25. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, so that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hits hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So if a fight causes premature birth, but no other harm. There's a fine. However, if the baby is injured or killed, God says the offending party must pay. I'm going to pause here at the risk of going off topic because I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, that this law of retribution, the eye for an eye formula, that's God's idea. And also, it started with his concern for the unborn. We have to talk about it just briefly, because the news is full of this issue right now. And I want you to remember his concern for the unborn in the coming days, because there is a storm brewing in our country right now. Uh, And God's people have been kind of looking forward to and praying for it for decades. We are anticipating, even as we speak, sometime in the next couple of weeks, the Supreme Court decision to come down that may overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the rumor. And the temperature is going to go way up in this country, and the debates are going to be ferocious. Because after five decades and more than 63 million abortions in this country, the case is going to be reopened, so to speak. And every state will have to reevaluate the question of life, and this is going to require new energy from the church and an awful lot of prayer. Now, we here at Lehigh Valley Press, we have a history of involvement in the pro-life cause, and in recent years, 
that has been focused on the mercy side of the mission, uh, helping out with Bright Hope. And that is probably the, the most important thing in some ways we can do, and we're going to need more of that. But I want you to be prepared for the debates that are coming, uh, because we've been drinking in the culture for a long time. It's been 49 long years, and that does serious damage to the soul of a nation. And I don't think even the church is prepared for this debate. I have been stunned to hear some Christians, including homeschooled teenagers, who can parrot every pro-abortion trope from memory with complete fluency. I saw this in class this week. There are pro-lifers who argue that this decision is going too far, it lacks nuance, they say the situation is too complicated and that such a decision is dangerous, it's going to create a backlash, it's only designed to oppress women. And I just want to remind you all that as this heats up in our nation and as we discover what kind of inroads the culture of death has made even into the church, I want you to remember that God cares about the unborn and that the eye-for-an-eye formula originated with the unborn, and God is not interested in nuance on the question. He is not ambiguous on this point. And there is no amount of complication that makes murdering children okay. Now, that's not a call to be nasty or to pick fights, because I think often the loudest voices in the room are often the ones who are hurting the most and dealing with the most guilt and shame. So we need to show grace, and we need to proclaim the gospel to those who are burdened, and they need to know that Jesus died even for the sin of abortion. But don't for a minute make the mistake of thinking that abortion is complicated. Sin is always complicated, but God's heart on this matter is not. He cares about the unborn, and we should too. That's not the main point today, just an aside. Our main point is talking about retaliation and why Jesus discourages it. So I'll observe quickly that the eye-for-eye formula also appears in Leviticus 24, That passage makes clear that it applies to the death penalty and all bodily injuries, even among uh, grown people. Uh, Deuteronomy 19 comes up again. Moses laid out similar rules concerning their uh, false testimony, actually. He says, if you commit perjury by bearing false witness against your neighbor uh, and you do it intentionally to get him in trouble, whatever punishment he was going to face, now you get that. So now that all sounds fine, you know, the eye for an eye thing, this is justice in a nutshell. And like I said, we, we like that. But then here comes Jesus raining on our parade all over again, as he's been doing. He says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I want to go through this one step at a time. Because honestly, this command is kind of irritating. And uh, it kind of seems to get worse as we go. This feels like Jesus is inviting us to be a doormat. The opposite of payback. And honestly, if we were to do this, this would make a very boring, frustrating movie. So I start at the top. Jesus says not to resist one who is evil. And as soon as he says that, I feel like I'm already kind of confused because I thought resisting evil was kind of part of the Christian's job description. James says in James chapter 4, he says, resist the devil, also known as the evil one, and he will flee from you. But Jesus tells us not to resist evil people. 
Now, I, I realize it's not actually a contradiction. Resisting the devil doesn't mean resisting every evil person. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that to truly avoid all evil, we'd have to leave the planet. Not a terribly practical thing. So we have to be in the world and not of it. And he says to purge the evil within the church, Paul does, but let God handle the world. And I, I think that's what Jesus is kind of getting at here. The point is that we shouldn't live in a completely separate bubble. We're not the Amish. We have to interact with the world around us. So that makes sense. But it's the actual examples that Jesus gives that bothers me. And he applies this lesson to five situations kind of broadly here. Five ways that people will abuse you and you should let them. He lists five categories where people will take advantage. They'll use violence. They'll take your stuff. They'll steal your time and labor. They'll ask for money. And they'll borrow stuff and either misuse it or never return it. And in every case, Jesus says, let it go. He starts with violence. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek. I can't read this passage without picturing Weird Al in Amish Paradise, where he references turning a different kind of cheek after a kid kicks him. But um, I can't help but hope that Jesus must be using hyperbole here. This is the polar opposite of how I would want my son to fight. You gotta hit back like you mean it. Nice guys finish last. And if you don't hit back, what's gonna stop them from hitting you again? None of us would advise our children this way. Even if we told them not to hit back, we would certainly not tell them to offer the kid another free punch. No, you'd want them to get an adult involved, put a stop to it, right? And worse yet, Jesus makes it sound like this is an unmerited attack. I mean, I got in that fight in elementary school because I kind of picked it, right? Jesus says not to retaliate even if you've done nothing. Not only should you not hit first, you can't even respond. This would be terrible policy on a national scale. The U.S. government can't afford to wait for someone else to hit us first, and they certainly can't afford not to retaliate when people hit us, right? Because we all know that weakness breeds contempt and power abhors a vacuum. So if the military doesn't strike back and strike back hard when things happen, enemies are encouraged and the whole world becomes less safe. We know that. We understand that on a world stage. There's no reason any country in the world would willingly just put its weapons down. Weakness invites aggression. Now, I don't want to be a pushover. I don't want my kids to be pushovers. Ditto for my country. Voluntary disarmament would be stupid in international politics. If America were to turn the other cheek and apply it that way, bad actors like Russia, China, they would gladly fill the void. But I end up feeling like, doesn't the same principle kind of apply on the individual level? Like, if I let someone abuse me, there's nothing stopping them from doing it again. Turning the other cheek can look an awful lot like enabling the abuser. And turning the other cheek's not going to solve the problem. We know this from experience. There's a reason crime rates don't go down when you stop arresting criminals. Just ask anyone in Philadelphia. Then Jesus applies the same lesson to material possessions. He says, look, if some jerk sues you and you lose your shirt, give him the jacket too. Now, just for clarification, the Greek for tunic here is cheaton or keton. I don't even know how to say it. But if you have a study Bible, it might have a footnote there clarifying that this was the garment that you wore under everything. This is the thing that was against your skin. So this is basically your all-purpose underwear. 
men and women both wore tunics. Men's tunics would come to the knee. Women's would go to the ankle. But when we say that someone sued the pants off of somebody, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's fleecing you down to the skin, which means you already look ridiculous. And Jesus says, eh, give him the jacket too. Great. Now I'm literally naked. This is the Middle East we're talking about. They only wore two layers at most, all right? You have to understand that. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. Let it go. Once again, this seems to open the door pretty wide to possible abuse, right? Jesus is talking about a lawsuit, but it would seem that it would apply to any material loss. We're just not supposed to worry about our stuff. I mean, I get it, but it does seem kind of careless. Someone robs me. Am I supposed to just let that go? If someone steals Jacob's bike from my front yard, should I put Alyssa's out there the following night? That's a bad example. They're both broken right now. They'd probably be fine with that. <laughs> but still, what's the limiting principle, you know? And then Jesus says, essentially, that we should let people take advantage of our labor. He says, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go too. I always thought this example was weird. Like, who can force you to go for a mile-long walk? I mean, Georgia does that to me, but that's kind of the abuse I signed up for. That was, that's part of marriage, right? That's in the contract. But how can a random person force you to go for a walk? Or to go a mile in any way? So I always thought this was weird, but weird things happen in Philadelphia. Uh, not once, but twice. I had total strangers get into my minivan when I was driving. <laughs> Once, it was a totally emotionally unstable teenager who just climbed right in as I was sitting in traffic, all angry, on Cotman Avenue, and uh, told me he needed to get away from some other kids and needed a ride to Northeast High School. I was traveling west, and I was heading that way anyway, so I took him. I didn't see that I had much of an option. He never made eye contact. He sat there muttering to himself the entire time. The other time was weirder. I was on my way home from work. I was coming down Martin's Mill Road. Some guy starts yelling at me on my driver's side. He's across the street down the block a ways, and he's just yelling at me, and he's asking for a lift. He said, I just need to get out of here. I, I, I need to go to Alney. Now, I grew up in Alney. I know where Alney is. I don't like to go to Alney. It's not where I'm headed. And I said so. I said, I'm not going that way, man. And he came over and climbed in anyway. And he said he was scared for his life. He needed to get away from some people. So I turned around and I went to Alney to drop him off. I think that was at least two miles out of my way. So I had this passage ringing in my ears. I'm like, this is it. Sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, I'm probably lucky to be alive. Um, so anyway, I, I learned it is possible to force someone to go a literal mile. Um, but I think Jesus is talking more broadly about people taking advantage of your time and labor. I've had several employers do that. I dare say most of you have too. You know, your boss will force you to put in extra hours or he'll reduce your benefits or refuse to approve your vacations. I had one boss who wouldn't let me go home and take a sick day in an afternoon because I had a fever and nausea, and I was serving food on a line, and he still wouldn't let me go. Jesus says, 
meh, don't worry about it. Stay the extra hour. Work on Saturday if they need you to. Go that extra mile. He says to give to whoever is begging. In my experience, that's a great way to get more beggars. We're going to talk more about giving to the needy in a couple of weeks, but this one's another tough sell. Uh, The one thing all charities have in common is that they haven't solved poverty. So Jesus says, don't worry about it. If they're asking, give them something. And lastly, Jesus says to not even worry about getting back what you loan out. That means I shouldn't bug Phil about my ladder, for instance. And I won't, Phil. I'm not going to say a word. Seriously, we all know some people are just not reliable about returning things, right? And I know that because I am that person in a lot of instances. I have been the guy with a ladder that I didn't return for many months until a guy came and like gave me a hard time about it. But I have furniture in my house and books and movies and probably money that I borrowed years ago and will never be able to return. <laughs> and I've also loaned things out to people and not gotten them back. And I keep a scorecard of people that I would never loan anything to mentally. But Jesus doesn't seem to be concerned with those kind of securities. And on the whole, I would say that this is possibly the hardest lesson yet in the Sermon on the Mount, because it sounds like it should be technically doable, but it would wreck your ego and probably your bank account. And it would be the most humiliating lesson to put into practice. And if you take it literally, it would leave you bruised, naked, exhausted, and penniless. That's not a very enticing offer, and I feel immediately kind of defensive upon reading it, don't you? You know, so far, every time Jesus has mentioned an Old Testament law, he has made it even more strict. But now he takes, like, the one law that we kind of like, the basic fairness rule, and, like, kind of throws it out. Yeah, the Old Testament allowed you to demand compensation when you're wrong, but I say let it go, don't worry about it. Someone steals your wallet, don't even cancel the credit cards. This, more than anything, would sound absolutely ridiculous. It runs so counter to human nature that we assume we have to be missing something here. Now, I understand that retaliation leads to escalation in some instances. Like, I get that. And I know that because I have children, right? Everything from a toy to somebody's spot on the couch or how loud someone is humming, anything can lead to blows within minutes, right? And we can see the escalation happening. So I know the danger of it. And that's why I always discourage my kids from retaliation. I've seen what they fight over and it's usually kind of stupid. And yet the voices just keep getting louder. And then the hits get harder and harder. So we tell them to stop fighting. And we rebuke everyone for contributing to making it worse. And usually I'll tell the older one to act like the older one and let it go. I can hand out this advice. I can dish it. But somehow... It seems like that can't possibly work in my grown-up scenarios. If I let it go long enough, they will walk all over me and crush me. Jesus has to understand that this is not very practical advice. He is once again setting the bar way too high. Not only can I not keep this command perfectly, if I'm honest, I have no interest in keeping it. It frankly sounds dangerous, and if I did do what Jesus is saying, I would be doing it out of cowardice, not conviction. And unlike the Beatitudes, he gives no indication here that we will be blessed in some noticeable way for doing these things. Heck, he doesn't even give a reason why. He just says, do this, and leaves it at that. 
Now, I'd be tempted to raise my hand at this point and start the Q&A session. Apparently, no one had the audacity to do that. So what are we supposed to make of this? I think it's, it might be helpful to start by asking what makes us so quick to retaliate. And not just in the extreme cases, but the minor stuff. Everything Jesus mentions here is extreme as in they're weird examples, but they're not life-threatening, like a smack on the face, losing your shirt, going for a long walk. Kind of small potatoes in the grand scheme of things, right? But we retaliate over much lesser examples in these categories, don't we? If not outwardly, at least in our minds. We've been talking throughout this this entire Sermon on the Mount that everything comes down to a heart issue. So if someone punches me, I am all out assaulting them in my heart. I bloodied that kid who kicked me in ninth grade a hundred times in my heart. The city of Allentown fined me three times for street cleaning last year. I have had choice words and evil thoughts on these occasions about various agencies. I also can't repeat what I've yelled at the IRS on the phone, not that anyone's ever listening on the other line. (laughs) Or even about wasting my time and labor. You know, my one manager, that, that, that guy that gave me the hard time about leaving work when I was sick, The next time, a couple months later, I took a sick day. I took that day to go fishing with my friend. So, yeah, I retaliate when I can. And the rest of the time, I daydream about it. Some people even retaliate against God. It's ridiculous, but plenty of people get mad at God, and maybe they hear a sermon that hammers on their favorite pet sin, and so they retaliate by rebelling against God. They could punch the preacher, I guess. But sometimes they rebel against God. If you can't hit back physically, you can walk away from the faith. You can walk away from church. You can punish God by cold-shouldering him. You can retaliate by ignoring him, as if that can maybe hurt him. You figure, well, it works against my parents. Maybe it'll work against him. That kind of rebellion doesn't even necessarily show on the outside, but it's real. So why the hair trigger? Why are we so defensive? Why does revenge play such a prominent role even in our secret fantasies and in our films and everything else? I think it's because we don't trust that God is just. This commandment is offensive because it sounds like we get cheated while the other guy gets off scot-free and we don't trust God to be just. We think of him as a dad who's paying no attention and doesn't punish the one who started the fight. We think he's unfair. So we figure we better look out for ourselves. Unbelievers do the same thing because they don't really trust karma any more than we tend to trust God. I saw a t-shirt at Five Below this week that said, Dear Karma, I have a list of people you missed. But we think of God the same way, don't we? We don't trust that he'll take care of business, so we think, maybe I'll just give him a hand. We all want to be the instrument of God's wrath. 
But Jesus is saying God doesn't want vigilantes in his kingdom. Look at God's track record. Even when he does punish evildoers in scripture, he prefers to use third parties. He used foreign countries to judge Israel. He uses secular governments to punish crime. He uses church leadership to correct his people. We know that he does that. But if we're honest, we know that lots of people slip through the cracks and seem to get away with things. But Jesus' point is that we need to trust that God will eventually settle all accounts. He wants you to trust that his justice will not sleep forever and not to take matters into our own hands. Paul makes the same case in Romans 12. And he does it in language that maybe we'll like a little bit better. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Georgia once made cookies for someone who had recently attacked her unfairly, and she told me they were burning coal flavored. But Paul is making explicit what is implicit in Jesus' lesson today. In other words, you don't turn the other cheek because the slap wasn't a big deal. You do it because it was a big deal, but only God can deal with it. Ultimately, every sin ever committed against you was first and foremost a sin against him. He has more right to be angry than you. I know we don't believe that, but it's true. He is the offended party more than you are. There's a funny little line in the PCA Book of Church Order. It's in the Rules of Discipline, and it's talking about court cases when you're, you know, you're going to punish somebody or excommunicate them. It says, uh, in every case, the church is the injured and accusing party against the accused. That sounds kind of wimpy or something like that, but what they're saying, in other words, is there are no personal grievances in the church. It's the same reason the state presses charges against murderers and not the victim's family or friends, right? The state doesn't. There is no such thing as private justice. And Jesus is saying the same is true in God's kingdom. For every sin, God is the injured and accusing party, not you. And every sin that has ever been committed, including sins against you, those sins will be paid for either on Calvary or at the judgment. You can rest assured that God's justice will not sleep forever. But there's a final point to be made here. It is worth considering the fact that you have been on both sides of the equation. You have been mistreated in life, yes. But you have also mistreated others. And for every story you could tell of someone who sinned against you in some grievous way, someone else somewhere is telling a story where you are the villain. And they're probably not wrong. So isn't it a mercy that God is not swift to the judgment? That he's not as quick on the draw as you are? That he doesn't retaliate like we do? I observed earlier that if we followed this command to the letter at the end, we would be beat up, naked, exhausted, and broke. 
And I thought to myself, how can we hear Jesus say these words and not picture him, knowing the end the way we do? How can we not picture him walking the lonely last mile to Calvary, bearing a heavy cross, going like a lamb to the slaughter, putting up no fight? He never retaliated. And he was naked. And he was beat up, and he was exhausted. If you measure it, the steps that he would take from Gethsemane to where his trial was and everything else and take it out to Calvary, it's almost exactly a mile, actually. And he never retaliated. He wouldn't even let Peter retaliate for it. He didn't fight back, and yet he won. So who are we to be so quick to fight back? I saw Kevin DeYoung put this on Facebook yesterday, and I thought it was put so well. He said, as God is generous to us, let him be as generous as he wants with everyone else. So this is a tough command, but there is good news. There's always good news. The spoiler is still true, right? I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The Sermon on the Mount is not about you and me. It is about Jesus. He is the main character, and he's the hero of his own story. We aren't trusting karma, we're trusting Christ. And the point of this passage is not to let everyone treat you like dirt. The bigger point is that he did that already. So what can we do but give thanks and let him be generous with everyone else? Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for these commands that are so difficult, Lord, but give us a glimpse, not of of ourselves, surely. They give us a picture of your justice, Lord, but more clearly they give us a picture of your son, who is the fulfillment of every one of these words, every single lesson that he has been teaching us. Lord, help us to be slow to retaliate. Help us to be forbearing. And Lord, let us not trust the karma, but let us trust Christ. Help us to believe that your justice will not sleep. And help us to pray instead for mercy, Lord, not only for ourselves, but for those around us, even those who wrong us. Help us to do that even this week. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Praise God from